This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm Mary Wilson. Today, conversations with three different Fordham alumni, all in transition and all in pursuit of meaningful work. We'll hear from a former Wall Street stockbroker who's finding the silver lining to the economic crisis, and then from an artist who became a lawyer after reevaluating his career in the wake of September 11th. But first, getting up the gumption to go for your first love. This is a story about Johnny Pesha. He was 15 class credits into his master's degree and committed to being a philosophy professor when he decided that music was too important to be just a part-time preoccupation. So he formed a band with bassist Lachlan McIntyre and drummer Dave Register. We officially call it Johnny Pesha and the D-Train Riders. Aisha is a friend and a Fordham alum, and when he releases his first EP titled Parikh, he'll be seven songs into a new career, one that he had previously relegated to the realm of the pipe dream. Step one to pursuing the pipe dream, don't be put off by inauspicious beginnings. Dave, me, and Lachlan met in Dave's basement. Oh, this gross, mildewy place. There was a, a big price club-sized bucket of coffee where it was just a the can that was completely filled with water that had leaked from the ceiling. It was really gross down there. But uh, right away, we just played good music. It was fun. And uh, we played a gig like three days after we'd all met. Can you talk about how how you went from becoming a fan of music to wanting to just play more for yourself to wanting to make a go of it? Because you're just out of graduate school. That's right. Yeah, I uh, graduated with an MA in philosophy, it's accelerated masters, it was a five-year program. But from the time I was a really small kid, um, I just remember being very inspired by music, and especially the rock and roll that my parents would play on the radio whenever we drive somewhere. So What kind of stuff? I can remember very early on loving uh, a Roy Orbison record, and this is very early on, like 1989. You were two, three? I was two. Yeah, I have, I have vivid memories. And the single just came out. It was a posthumous single of Roy Orbison, uh, Anything You Want, You Got It, or maybe it was just called You Got It. And his voice just uh, really resonated with me. we were on vacation as a family there would always be some kind of band at the bar playing and I would just you know be the annoying kid sitting up front just staring at the guitar player and finally when I was about six or seven uh, my parents got me a nylon string guitar and I I didn't know how to play it but I would really just strum and pretend like I knew how to play and if a record came on I wouldn't hit any notes but I would just strum the strings to create a kind of clanking sound in some shape or form, I always wanted to play music. And at the same time, I, I also wanted to uh, please my family or whatever the powers that be growing up and, and do something that was respectable. So uh, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a doctor and a rock star or a musician, you know, then a lawyer and a musician, and then a dentist, because my dad's a dentist, his dad's a dentist, my sister's a dentist, everyone in my family. So I wanted to do that and be a musician. And then it occurred to me that I just couldn't do that. So 
In high school, I started writing songs a whole lot. It was like just like this pipe dream or really an obsession. I mean, I'd rather do that than go out, you know, and I would stay up all night just doing that. And in college, I think I think I needed to be told that I was good at something before I had the um, courage to do this, you know. But I, I was a musician. I wrote songs. I just didn't I, I thought I needed something more than that because, you know, growing up that it was doctor, lawyer, engineer, scientist or businessman. Uh, anything else is just not a real way of life. Or maybe if for a hobby, that's all right. You needed to be told you were good at something else before you decided to do music? Yeah, I think so. Or maybe maybe something that wasn't completely different from it. Like maybe to be told that I was a good writer or a good thinker. And both of these things, I, you know, I saw the great musicians I was inspired by all were good thinkers and all could express themselves very well. I wanted to get good at that. And I got into Fordham. And when I came here, I just, uh, I think I, I took things seriously. You know, whatever we were studying in class, I took it seriously. Uh, philosophy or the history or even the science, you know. I just, for some reason, I thought that this could help me. Really, I thought it would help me get to becoming a musician. I really did. And I still do, in a way. But what's interesting to me is that, like this time last year, you were on track to finish up your master's degree in philosophy. And you were thinking about teaching. That's right. You were thinking about what schools you could go to to get your Ph.D., where you'd like to be. But um, I was thinking about that. And then, again, this this idea of becoming a professor and a musician. I was also looking at, at places where I could play music and be a professor. And as I this time last year, I'd written a couple songs, maybe I had about four songs. And I decided to go to an open mic and, and play. And as I started to play, I realized that being a musician would take the same amount of energy and time and work that being a student did. And and by the end of the first semester, I realized that I couldn't do both very well. And I, the only reason I went down that road of wanting to be a professor, wanting to study philosophy, is because I thought that that I would be really good at that. And also because I thought that it would be something that people would approve of, you know, because having a doctor in front of your name or a PhD after it is something that appears to be respectable. And so I thought that, if I if I could do that, then I would be respectable, and I could still, you know, somehow get to music. But it occurred to me that I couldn't do both well. And then I I remembered or realized that the only reason I wanted to do philosophy was was so that I could learn to write, say what I want to say, and uh, explore ideas, you know, for for the sake of writing songs. This is this is going to be your first EP. Yeah. I, I guess I just want to gauge, like. Are you scared? I mean, in a lot of ways, you're still pretty green. Yeah. Do you feel green or do you feel kind of like an old soul? Well, both. Every day I'm gaining experience about what it takes to be a musician, you know, and what it takes to live as a musician. And sometimes learning learning about that is really scary and daunting. At the same time, though, I feel like this is what I've always wanted to do more than anything else and it happened that 
now I'm in position to pursue it. And since that's the case, I will, I, I will do it till I die. You know, I'll just do it. I'll stake my life on it. Since, since I'm trying to live according to what I love most deeply, it's, it sort of seems like a dream and not really real. And, you know, I'm trying to, trying to make it real. With anything, if you, you know, you, you can, you have a plan or an aspiration and it's really easy to come up with that plan, you know, but to actually follow through on it is like what kills your nervous system. You know, I'm just willing to do that now. I'm willing to just try and see what happens. But you say that I'm free To follow my dreams I know just what that means But you know I had a professor named Nori Clark, who's this old Jesuit, he's 91 when he taught us, and he was so in love with what he was doing that it was just inspiring to be around him. He loved teaching. In fact, it was clear to me, I don't know if he said it explicitly, but it was clear to me that teaching kept him alive. And I've also seen some old performers, like Bob Dylan, for instance. And when he's in his groove on stage, you can tell that playing music is what keeps him alive. He's on a never-ending tour, Bob Dylan is. I strive for that. Say, old man, can you please take the long way Johnny Pesha is the front man for the D-Train Riders. The band's EP is Parikh, and you can listen to some of the tracks on the group's MySpace page. Go to myspace.com slash the D-Train Riders. Up next, a former Stocks and Bonds man who finds joy in a part-time tutoring gig and the monthly meetings of a job search support group. Stay with us. You're listening to Fordham Conversations on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm Mary Wilson. Today we're hearing from people in different stages of finding meaningful work. If it's possible to take a leap of faith for the dream gig, this next bit is about levitating, uncertainly between gigs. George Papadimus never thought he'd have such difficulty lining up a job. For him, the financial crisis is very real. But he talks about its myriad challenges as though they're kind of like merit badges things to acquire and appreciate as proof of passage. I was working on Wall Street for 20 years as a stockbroker, uh, bond researcher. Was that your dream job when you first got it? Oh, yeah. When I first I saw, like, uh, Charlie Sheen on Wall Street. I'm saying the movie back in 87, the Buddy Fox. That was, that's the time when I got licensed. Wall Street is our version of Hollywood, the East Coast version. It's geared toward the young. There was a spreadsheet that listed the people who were getting laid off or let go and it's it was basically geared for people over 40. How big corporations work when there's an economic downturn it's perfect opportunity to get rid of the people who are over 40. They're more costly for health insurance. They feel they're, they're not as productive as someone coming out of college. 
Wall Street is basically geared toward the young. I didn't expect uh, this deluge because I've, I've I've had friends all in other firms, so I was thinking if I got let go, I could always ask them for a job. But my friends have been let go, so you just try and reinvent yourself. Uh, I'm presently a college assistant at John Jay College, where I tutor students in psychology, English, and or in whatever uh, subject they need help in. For me to go back to Wall Street, it's like like the salmon going uh, swimming upstream. It's it's a bigger challenge. It's, my computer's skills aren't as sharp as someone, let's say, in 20 years old. They want like you to do Excel spreadsheets, pivot tables, and, and so forth at, at record speed. I'm not, I'm not cutting edge on that. But you're pretty optimistic. Oh, yeah, you have to be. Life goes on. There's always, you can't, you got to turn uh, the lemons into lemonade. You can't just sit, yeah, you got to move on. That's part of life. I didn't cause this mess. You just got to deal with, you got to do the best you can. When the financial meltdown happened, um, I was trying to reevaluate myself. Where where can I apply my skill set to? And a friend of mine was a professor at John Jay, and he told me there's there's some openings for college assistants. Uh, I've been doing it almost a year now, and and I enjoy doing it. Unfortunately, the income isn't isn't enough as compared to what I was making on Wall Street, but. Uh, the energy in the school is phenomenal. Just seeing the the, the students when they come up to me, say, George, can you please help me with my essay? And so, uh, it's it's so enriching for the soul. It's you don't know how much. Uh, so it's something you think you might stay in that. Kind I'd of love work? to stay, but uh, John Jay's uh, is funded by the city. They're they're going through budgetary crisis, so I don't know if they're going to renew my contract come September. But we'll see. one step at a time. I, I found something that I like, but it, the money isn't there. So I'm trying to come up with ideas how else I could support myself as well as my family to pay the bills. It's a tough situation. I've actually gone, there's a, a lovely woman by the name of Annette McLaughlin. She works at Career Services. Annette had best, she said, George, the because of the economy, it's giganomics. I said, what do you mean, Annette? I said, yeah, yeah how you survive and pay bills, you have to get certain gigs. like." part-time jobs and piece them together. That's called giganomics. I said, that's cool. That's what I'm trying to do. As I said, I got John Jay. Uh, I'm there four days a week for six hours, and that doesn't make it to cover my bills. So I have to find another uh, gig to try to support myself and my family. Going for your dream job, I don't think it's... I've never, I haven't observed people saying, I'm here for, to try to get a, an idea for my dream job. It's basically, how do I find a job? See, the, th the thing I like about Fordham, they, they have resources here for alumni as well as students, and I don't think too, enough people are aware of them. I met George at a meeting of the Career Continuance Support Group. It's for Fordham alumni who could use some advice with their job searches. The group meets on the last Wednesday of every month. Perfect attendance for 14 years. Yes. And these are the Career Continuance Coordinators. Uh, I'm Nick O'Neill, Fordham College, 55. Oh, she didn't hear introduce yourself. Just introduce yourself. Oh, um, hi, I'm Bob Miller. I went to Fordham with Nick O'Neill. At this meeting, 10 people help themselves to sandwiches and sodas and sit around long conference tables. There are several fugitives from financial services, one person with marketing experience and another who's been temping for a year. There's a web designer. There's a lawyer, all ranging in age from 20s to 50s. Nick O'Neill calls the meeting to order. Now, as always, we... Uh we start with a little prayer. May you realize that you are never alone, that you have a special destiny here, 
that behind the facade of your life there is something beautiful, good, and eternal happening. And I thought that was a, a good, thoughtful prayer to start off with because it makes so, so often I think we get down on ourselves and we shortchange who we are and what we have to offer. And that's so important to keep that up-up spirit in looking for a job, looking to change the industry or whatever it is that, just in general in life. So that's a little cornerstone of tonight. Okay? Now as always, we'll go around the room, but before we do that, we have prayer partners. We ask you to pray for each other and to pray for the group as, to whole, as a whole. I, I talked to some people, and I, I got this comment a couple times that somebody said it was it's kind of like an AA meeting. That's correct. Yeah, it's kind of weird because you have to introduce, hi, my name is George. I've, I worked on Wall Street 20 years. I'm in this meeting. Because if you go there regularly, you, you, you're, you're somewhat embarrassed about like making this little 10-second or 15-second speech. But uh, uh, I thought about it, and then I said, wait a minute. That's how others who are coming here for the first time uh, are learning about you. Like I've gotten people coming up to me and say, yeah, I, I heard you're a college assistant, but you worked on Wall Street. I have a friend of mine. He worked at the financial aid office at so-and-so school. Do you want to contact him? So, yeah, it's inspirational. If I come away with one idea from the, the two-hour session, I'm happy. They know. I said, no, you don't re network by first thing throwing your resume at them. It's not all about you. It's all about the person you're talking to. Yeah, that's number one. When you're networking and you have a networking appointment with someone, you go the same way as if you were going to a job interview. You will be dressed that way. You're going to be sharp. You're going to be bright. You're going, you're, you're going to be um, full of vim and vigor, right? <laughs> Not like me and Bob. Yeah. We're a little no, no. Stay with yourself. Well, I just made that. A little tired, Bob. When you when you look around the room yes. at career continuance, do you see people who are there who are like actively searching, and then you see people who are kind of like clearly in a rut? I've seen the person who's in a rut, and everyone's heart goes out to the individual. Bob and Nick uh, subtly push people to actively search, and like they give them assignments. Well, next by next month, I want you to do this and this and this, but then they, they might not show up the the following month. Okay, next job, search, supportive group, meeting, whatever we are. July 28th, okay? Same time, same place. Uh, if you know someone that you think could be helped by coming, bring them along, okay? We don't want to hug all this beautiful information to ourselves. So describe to me what's happening in the room right now. Well, right now, we just closed a meeting. And we had 10 people here, and we have 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. We have 8 people still here. And the meeting's over, and they're all talking to each other. About what? Well, about their own experiences. Do you have people who they get a job, and they come back to you and say, I got a job, I'm yeah. not coming back? Oh, we do. We have a grand time. When they come back, they tell us what they went through, what they're doing, and, and we're, we're delighted. Uh, one of the unusual things is, though, we've talked to, I'm sure, over a thousand people in the course of the time, that we don't hear from that many. We do hear from some. People might come to three meetings or one meeting, and then we never see them again. We never hear. We don't know whether they got a job, whether if they did get a job, or whether they're still looking. 
it's it's amazing. It's a yeah, it's amazing dynamic at a thing. You don't know. You know what? Some people might be uncomfortable going after. Here, think of it. So you're there, most likely without a job, and you're introducing yourself. So you're at a a, a nadir in your in your presentation. Most likely, they're just trying to forget that part of life. They're just saying he was just a speed bump, so I'm, I'm back on track. So let me just, it happened. Let me just forget, move on. So that's why they uh, maybe they don't show up. But it's an injustice for all the all this work that the two gentlemen do. I once said to Bob when we were starting out, I said, Bob, how many people should we have uh, per meeting to feel that this is something worthwhile? And he said, one. <laughs> so that's the way we have to look at it. Whether we have one or we have 21 or 200, doesn't matter. It's not a quantity thing, it's a quality thing. That's right. One person is enough. Right. Right. It's worked out. What would you want to remember from this transitional time? Um, that it was a storm. The, the, my friend came up with a good analogy. It's a storm out there, and I, I stumbled upon a cave just to stay, stay out of the storm. And in this cave, I, f I found a little joy and happiness and, and a positive impact on others. No, I've had impact on other people's lives, the students. Uh, so that, at John Jay. At John Jay, yeah. Being a teaching oh, yeah, assistant. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. It's like I'm walking down the halls, and they stop me. Can you help me with my papers? And so, and I'm, I do it even after hours. I don't get paid for it. I just say, like, the, kid, the kids need help. I got I to gotta help them, so, yeah. Did you ever have a moment where you, th you, you caught yourself thinking about the storm, as you put it, mm -hmm. in these terms where, like, you were just going to kind of, you were going to try to get through it and then pretend it never happened? No, no, it's a learning experience. No, this is, this is, no. No, I, you can't forget it. No, it's, you can't, you can't forget this. This is a big learning experience. People shouldn't forget this. George Papadimus is a teaching assistant at John Jay College of Criminal Justice and an alum of Fordham's Business School. Nick O'Neill and Bob Miller are holding the next meeting of career continuance on July 28th at Fordham's Lincoln Center campus in Manhattan. For more information, visit Fordham.edu and search career continuance. Coming up, a lawyer who was once a painter and now sees artistry in applying the law. Stay with us. You're listening to Fordham Conversations on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm Mary Wilson. We've heard so far from a philosopher-turned-musician and a stockbroker-turned-teaching assistant. Now we'll hear from an artist-turned-lawyer. Ralph Wolf was selling his paintings for several years before the ripple effects of September 2001 made him step back from his career as an artist and look for something else. Wolf says he still paints every day, but not to sell. His chief product now, you might say, is paper. Standard forms filled out with court and client information in his office in the Bronx County Family Court. But Wolf says this new job really isn't so different from painting. I'm Ralph Wolf, court attorney to the New York City Family Court Volunteer Attorney Program. Can you tell me the story of you going into law, beginning with you not being in law at all? I made paintings. And I had a show at a place called the Judy Rotenberg Gallery, which is on Newberry Street in Boston. At the time, it was, it was my first solo exhibition in a commercial gallery, which 
was a significant milestone for me, yeah. And the show opened just before September 11th, and a member of the family that ran and owned the gallery, husband of the owner, uh, was on the plane, one of the planes that, you know, that, that flew into one of the World Trade Center towers. And the show stopped, and it was a, it was a bit jarring. It was a jarring experience for so many people, and my experience of it led me to where I am now. I wasn't planning to be a lawyer at that time. How long had you been an artist? Oh, I always enjoyed messing around with paint and things, so I, I couldn't put a, a date on that. I did get a master's degree in, in painting, and um, that was in the early 90s. Um, I came to New York in the mid-90s. And then suddenly you were, on, you were looking for a different path. Um, no, I wasn't, definitely wasn't suddenly looking for a different path. I would say I took an inventory of where I was at professionally, and through a slow process, I, I decided to uh, study for the LSAT, I think is how it went, you know, then applying to law schools, and that process led to starting law school, and then finishing law school, and getting my degree, and um, taking the bar exam, and you know, it, was, it didn't feel like a huge change, of course, at the time. I can see now, sitting here, that it was uh, quite dramatic. Sitting here, Ralph Wolf is in the courthouse basement in a cubbyhole of an office. The walls are bare, except for a framed doctorate diploma and another law school certificate. The printer is under the desk. There's space enough for three chairs where clients can pull out their court documents. These people are here to resolve disputes about child support or custody, paternity or domestic violence. And if they haven't already hired an attorney, they can get free legal advice here from attorneys who volunteer their time. Ralph Wolf coordinates the program that makes these volunteer lawyers available. Can you compare your day as, as somebody who paints, working for yourself, compared to what you do now? When I painted, I painted for a couple of hours a day, and there was a lot of work to do to prepare to be able to clear the space and provide the resources to be able to paint for a couple of hours. You know, there was a studio, and, you know, I needed to pay the rent, and there needed to be supplies to make the painting. And, and the work that I liked was, was making the paintings. Here, in this particular office at the Volunteer Attorney Program, the comparison would be that I like to help the clients that come here who are representing themselves, um, who don't have any legal background. We provide a service to them where they can get some legal advice and help them. And that's sort of the making the painting part. Just being summoned to court is a scary thing. There's a lot of stress in the building. So the people that work here, we try to you know, provide a nice place for people to, who are stressed out. We don't want to add to their stress. For myself, I believe very strongly that paintings you know, or cultural objects, be it a musical composition, what, whatever it is, a song, a mural, they help the city tremendously. They help the world. This is just, uh, I get to see the results a little bit more viscerally here. 
How do you go from filling white canvases full of color to filling out white forms with names and social security numbers? Ralph Wolf goes back to the reevaluation he made after being so jarred after that first commercial gallery art exhibition in September 2001. It wasn't the first time that I had looked at my career. When I was making paintings, I had looked at my career and did an inventory, and it had always come up. I love to paint, and there are good reasons to keep painting as a career. And this time, it's, it seemed that something else was going on. Um, and it was very important for me to identify for myself, regardless of the jobs that were out there, what I'm good at, what I want to do, what I don't want to do. Figuring out what's going to make my day meaningful professionally, and then putting that energy into the work that, whatever work that I'm doing, and slowly by slowly, the work that I need to do will be the work that I'm doing. I think I need to keep that attitude all the time because things change. Ralph Wolf works for the Family Court of the State of New York in the New York City Court Volunteer Attorney Program. He's a graduate of Fordham University School of Law. That's it for Fordham Conversations. Special thanks to Annette McLaughlin. You can find archived shows on WFUV.org or subscribe to our podcast. Become a fan of our Facebook page, search WFUV's Fordham Conversations, or follow us on Twitter. We're registered as Focon, F-O-C-O-N. Robin Shannon will be your host next week. Stay tuned for Cityscape at 7.30. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Mary Wilson. ¶¶